Well, as we go forward in worship now, we want to attend to God's Word. Uh, So we have four texts that we're going to read. Our primary text for the message this morning is Isaiah chapter 6, and we'll read that whole chapter. It's just 13 verses. Um, One of the really weighty things that I think you'll see as we come to Isaiah chapter 6 is that uh, God gives Isaiah what is essentially a ministry of condemnation for the people of Judah. He says, proclaim my word to this people so that their hearts will be hardened and they will not be forgiven. And so we're going to follow that theme of God's sovereignty over grace and over judgment throughout the rest of the scriptures. We'll see in John chapter 12 that Isaiah 6 is actually quoted to explain the unbelief of people in Jesus' own day and their coming Messiah. And then in Acts 28, God, uh, Paul also picks up on this theme of the unbelief of the Jewish people as a way for God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And then lastly, in Romans 11, I think we see the, the ultimate purpose of God's sovereignty over judgment and salvation, which is mainly to magnify his grace so that we would know how precious his grace truly is. And so I just invite you to, to see those themes of God's sovereignty as we go to his word now. Uh, Tom will come up and read for us first, and then Sherry, and then Brian, and then Ben. Let me pray that God would open our hearts to understand his word. God, as we come now to read your word, we know that we need your help in order to understand it rightly, in order to receive it in faith. God, would you indeed open our hearts to do that, open our eyes to see beautiful things in your word, God. I pray for myself especially, Lord, that you would open my mouth to declare only what is true. Lord, protect me from error and help me, Lord, to faithfully teach your word to these people this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your inequity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go with us, or for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. He said, Go, and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, 
and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will be again subject to burning, like the terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This verse is John 12, chapter 12, verses 36b to 41. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart. And be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Acts chapter seventeen, Acts chapter twenty-eight, uh, first half of verse seventeen, and then verses twenty-three through twenty-eight. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some of them were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but to never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. Has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. This is Romans chapter eleven twenty eight through 33. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that, they, that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy." For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. O oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. Amen. So as we come to Isaiah 6 this morning, uh, I think you can probably already see that we are in some deep waters. Uh, now I know my sermons before have been uh, accused of being very deep, and I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to avoid uh, depth this morning. In fact, I think we're in some of the uh, deepest waters there are in Scripture, and so I will do my best to uh, simplify things and make this easy to understand, and at the same time, I'm going to ask you to uh, put your thinking caps on and try to follow through these Scriptures with me. Uh, we will be going from Isaiah chapter 6 to Romans 9 to Exodus 33, 
as we trace this theme throughout Scripture of God's sovereignty over salvation and God's glory. Indeed, one of the things that most amazed me about Isaiah chapter 6 as I studied it this week is how clearly it ties together these concepts of God's glory and his sovereignty over salvation. The first half of Isaiah 6, I think many of us are already familiar with this idea of God being highly exalted, seated on the throne, this, the seraphim flying around crying, holy, holy, holy. And we've all seen this as a beautiful picture of the glory of God. And indeed it is. It's one of the best passages in all of Scripture, I believe, to get at this majestic and glorious character of God. And yet it is stunning how right after this description of God and all of his majesty in the temple, he commissions Isaiah as a prophet. And he commissions him with these words, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God has this message of condemnation to go forward through the prophet Isaiah right alongside this message of God's glory. And so the question I want to ask this morning is simply, how do these two ideas go together? This idea of the glory of God being high and lifted up, seated over all. And yet at the same time, this God who would say to his own people of Judah in the days of Isaiah, that I will not heal you. I am going to make your hearts dull and your eyes heavy. And I think that the conclusion that we will come to at the end of this message, as we look at Isaiah, and again, as we go to Romans 9 and Exodus 33, and we see again and again how God's glory, how God's name is tied right together with his sovereignty over salvation. I think we will see the truth in the end that God's sovereignty is central to his glory. This isn't just a tangential line of thought in the Bible. This isn't a minor theme that only shows up here in Isaiah 6. This is something that is repeated over and over again, even as we just read in John and in Acts. That this is a subject that God himself is not shy about proclaiming to his people. And because God himself is not shy to proclaim this truth, I do not want to be shy about proclaiming this truth either this morning. As I said, this is one of the truths in Scripture that I think goes very deep and is almost central to the very character and being of God. You've all probably seen pictures of a cross-section of earth before where you have the core in the very middle of the earth and you have the mantle around the core and then you have the crust on the very top. Well, this subject that we are delving into this morning, this idea of God's sovereignty over salvation is close to the core of who God is and close to the core of the Bible. There are other truths that we often talk about that are more like the mantle, things like the omnipotence of God and the omniscience of God. Those are still things that we can't really see with our own eyes. 
So we have to read about them in the word and we have to believe them on faith, but they're a little closer to something we can understand. And then, of course, there's the things on the very crust, things that we ourselves can experience, like the love of God and the grace of God and the faithfulness of God to us. But this idea of the sovereignty of God is something very core to who God is. And it is something that we must understand if we are to understand this God whom we worship. And so I want to begin by just going into Isaiah 6 here and again seeing how this idea of God's sovereignty is portrayed in Isaiah chapter 6. And then from there, we're going to go to Romans 9 and Exodus chapter 33 to see how this very same theme is developed in the very same way that we see it in Isaiah chapter 6, namely that God's sovereignty is central to his glory. And so let's begin in Isaiah chapter 6. I'll read verses 1 to 5, and then I'll have a few comments as we keep on going through. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook as the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, beloved, there is significance to every detail that Isaiah mentions in this vision of God upon his throne. Unfortunately, I do not have time this morning to go into all those details, but the one big thing that I think you can take away from this description is the very thing that Isaiah himself says in verse 5. He sees the Lord high and exalted, and what is his response to this? He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. That that statement that he makes there when he says, woe is me, is the exact same statement that has just been proclaimed over Judah in the previous chapter. As Isaiah proclaimed to Judah over and over again, woe to you who do wickedness, woe to you. And now he stands in the presence of God and all he can say is, woe to me. He realizes that he is a wicked man. He is lost and he is a man of unclean lips and he is in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Beloved, the same is the case with each and every one of us. If any one of us in this room were right now to stand in the presence of God, Our first reaction would not be to simply say, Lord, you are beautiful. I love you. Your first reaction would be to say, woe is me. I am undone. I cannot stand in your presence, Lord. The holiness of God is such that it is something that is frightening and fearful to us. The the goodness, the love, the holiness of God is like an ocean in comparison to us who have like an eighth of a teaspoon in our hands. None of us can stand in the presence of God. Isaiah's response to God was exactly right. He was in grave danger. Woe to him. 
he should have been slayed this instant. But then look at what happens in verses 6 and 7, and it is just remarkable. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Where does this come from, beloved? He had just stood in the presence of God and he had recognized his woe. He had recognized how he could not stand in the presence of God because he was a wicked man. Again, that was a right assessment of his condition. And yet, look at what God does to him. He offers a burning coal from the altar and one of these angelic beings, a seraphim, which means a flaming one, flies over to Isaiah and touches his mouth and says, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Beloved, this is the first picture of God's sovereignty in salvation that we see in Isaiah. There is no reason why Isaiah should be saved in this moment. Isaiah has done nothing right. He has not earned the favor of God. He is not better than all of his fellow Israelites. He is under God's judgment, the same as every other person in Judah. And he comes and stands before the presence of God. And if God were to be consistent with his character in that moment, Isaiah would be a dead man. And yet Isaiah is not a dead man. Isaiah is cleansed. His sin is atoned for with a coal from the altar. Just out of the blue, out of nothing, God chooses Isaiah and says, Isaiah, you are forgiven. Why? How, how could God do that? How could, I, how could God simply choose Isaiah and say, Isaiah, your guilt is atoned for, your sin is taken away. You don't need to fear anymore. God is sovereign in salvation. But then we go on in verse 8, we read, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And so this verse is the statement of Isaiah's commissioning as a prophet. He knows that he is now sent by God to proclaim God's word to the people. And again, there's certainly a whole sermon worth of material in that verse that we're not going to go into. So going on into verse 9. It says, and he said, and as God said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Verse 11, then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and Yahweh removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled 
the holy seed is its stump. God commissions Isaiah to preach a message of condemnation. Isaiah's most basic message to the people of Judah in his day was not repent and be forgiven. Isaiah's most basic message to his people is continue in your wicked ways, Judah, so that I can crush you. Now, I know that for those of us in the room this morning, this is a shocking message. We are so used to hearing about how each individual person is so priceless and so special. We are so used to thinking that our thoughts and our opinions are ultimately what governs the world, that they are what determines who is elected to office, what medicines we discover, what great feats of engineering we can accomplish. We as Americans especially have this notion that we can do whatever we set our mind to. I am the captain of my own fate. How many times do we hear the message on a daily basis that if you just believe it, then you can do it? We think that we as human beings are the measure of all things and that everything else in creation, including God himself, has to answer to us, to our standard of justice, to our standard of right and wrong. And yet here, In Isaiah, we see God writing off a whole nation of people and giving them no chance to turn, saying, Judah, I have condemned you, and I now send this prophet to simply confirm you in my judgment. And so this is the second sign of God's sovereignty in salvation that we see in Isaiah 6. That just like he chose Isaiah out of the blue for this redemption, for this forgiveness of sins, so in the mystery of his will, he seems to choose the people of Judah to say, you will not be forgiven. In fact, you will be hardened. You will be hardened to the point of being crushed entirely. Now again, there are many people who otherwise believe the Bible, who want to come to a passage like this and want to say, you know what, this is just a a very small passage in the midst of a very big Bible. Surely there are other ways to interpret this than what it most straightforwardly sounds like. Now, in general, I am very much in favor of using the interpretive method of saying, if there's just one small verse in the Bible that seems to attest to one thing, while there's a whole lot in the Bible that seems to attest to something else, then we should try to find a way to make the very small section of the Bible conform to the much larger testimony of the Bible. There's no problem with thinking in that way. The only problem with applying that sort of mindset to this passage in particular is that the message of the Bible is the same from beginning to end, that God is sovereign over salvation, that he does indeed ordain some to salvation and he ordains others to judgment. Again, it is not just the prophet Isaiah who says this, as we will see in just a moment. It is also Paul. It is also Moses. It is also John. Indeed, we already read John 12, verses 36 to 41, where Jesus himself picks up on these verses. And again, I just want you to find these notes of sovereignty in the words that John himself writes. 
So John 12, starting in verse 36b, says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many great signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now notice the words that begin verse 38. They still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Why did they not believe? Just because they were wicked and hard-hearted? Because they had made their own choice to not believe in Jesus, to not follow God? No, verse 38 clearly says that they did not believe so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is from Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then verse 39, John puts puts an exclamation mark on it. Therefore, they could not believe. And trust me, I went back to the Greek. That is a good interpretation of what the Greek says. They could not believe. Why? For again, Isaiah said, he, that is God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with her heart, and turn, and I would heal them. And then lastly, in verse 41, it says that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now this is more of a side point, but it's just an amazing thing to see. In verse 41, when it says that Isaiah saw his glory, and again, he just quoted from Isaiah 6, so clearly John is thinking of Isaiah seeing the glory of God in Isaiah 6. Who is it? Whose glory is it that Isaiah saw? Well, the most recent referent from verse 41 would be verse 36, which refers to Jesus. So whose glory did Isaiah see? In Isaiah chapter 6, he saw Jesus Christ. He saw the pre-incarnate Christ sitting upon a throne. That is whose glory Isaiah saw. And again, just keep in mind that John is not the only one that links this idea of God's sovereignty and judgment and the glory of God. Now, before we go on and look at some of these other passages, I do just want to take a moment to define this word sovereignty. I know it may not be a common sense word any longer. If you've been a Christian for some time, you might be familiar with talk about God's sovereignty. Now, in my experience, usually when we're talking about God's sovereignty among Christians, we're just referring to God's control over all things. And while I don't have a problem with referring to sovereignty in this way, I'm going to be using the word sovereignty more according to a a dictionary definition in this message. Now, in the dictionary, sovereign means that a person or nation is able to act according to its own internal decision-making and not simply according to some higher power. I think that's the more precise definition of God's sovereignty. Um, So, for example, we call the United States a sovereign nation. And we call the United States a sovereign nation because when the United States Congress or president makes a decision, they don't have to consult some other country and say, am I allowed to make this decision? Is this okay with you? No, we're a sovereign nation. We're allowed to make our own choices to govern our own destiny. It's that case for every real nation on earth. The state of Pennsylvania, in contrast, is not a sovereign state. Okay, the state of Pennsylvania must answer 
to the U.S. government for any decisions that it makes. And if it makes a decision that's contrary to the U.S. Constitution, well, that law is going to be struck down and Pennsylvania is going to have to do according to what the United States does because it's not sovereign. The United States is sovereign. And so when I talk about the sovereignty of God, I mean that there is no one else whom God must consult. There is no force or power or person outside of God that can influence or change God's own decisions. God is his own decision maker, and no one else has authority over him to tell him what to do. Now, this attribute of God, again, is testified throughout Scripture. To give you just one example, Daniel 4, verse 35, it says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. So you hear that? He does according to his will. He doesn't do according to Rob Ivy's will. He doesn't do according to the will of the church. He doesn't do according to the will of whoever asks him. He does according to his will. And then after that, it says, And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? In other words, there is no court over God that he will then have to go and answer to for his decisions. He is judge and jury. He makes the decisions and he decides what is right. He is sovereign. So that's how I'm going to use the the language of God's sovereignty this morning. And sometimes you might also catch me saying God's freedom because I'm using freedom and sovereignty interchangeably here. To say that God is sovereign is to say that he is free. He is free to make whatever decision he wants because, again, he does not have to answer to anyone else. And again, in Scripture, we especially see this sovereignty of God. We especially see this freedom of God with respect to salvation. In Isaiah chapter 6, we saw that God chose one sinful man, Isaiah, for forgiveness and salvation. And he chose another sinful people, Judah, for blinding and for judgment. This was entirely God's decision and not man's. Man had no part to do with it. This was a decision that God made from before the foundation of the world. And he is simply bringing it to fruition in the days of Isaiah. So I'd like to spend the rest of this message now both defending this concept of God's sovereignty and showing how intimately God's sovereignty is tied to his glory. Now, I won't be able to offer an exhaustive defense, obviously, but I do at least hope to show you here how Isaiah chapter 6 is not some unique chapter in the Bible and how in looking at some other passages, we can actually see the message of Isaiah 6 shining through all the more clearly how God's sovereignty is central to his glory. So in Isaiah 6, we've already seen how it begins with this picture of God's glory. And then it jumps right into this message of God's sovereignty. And so I think that even in Isaiah 6 itself, even though we who live in a visual age tend to really latch on to that first half of Isaiah 6 and say, wow, this is a really amazing picture of God's sovereignty, of his glory. 
I think what we'll find as we go through Romans 9 and Exodus 33, we see that the real picture of God's sovereignty and of his majesty is in the second half of Isaiah 6. It's almost as if God is saying to Isaiah, you've seen this vision of me sitting on my throne, but do you really want to see my majesty? Do you really want to see my glory? Well, then hear this message of my sovereignty in judgment. And so going now to Romans chapter 9, because I think that aside from Isaiah 6, Romans 9 is probably the best place to go in Scripture to look at this same reality. Romans 9 through 11 is for the Apostle Paul an extended argument for the sovereignty of God and for God's whole plan in redemptive history. The problem that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in Romans 9 is the very same problem that Isaiah is dealing with in Isaiah chapter 6. Namely, that God's own people, in Isaiah's case, the people of Judah, seem to be accursed. They're not believing. They're not not turning to God. And that's the same problem that Paul had in Isaiah chapter 9. Or sorry, in Romans chapter 9. Paul saw that most of the Jewish people were not believing. And this was a problem for Paul on a couple of levels. It was a problem for him personally. He says that it is a matter of great agony and sorrow for him. Verse 2 of Romans 9 says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart that so many of my fellow Jews are not believing in their Messiah. And so he, on the one hand, had this very personal sorrow that so many of his family members, so many of the people that he knew and loved, were not turning to their Messiah. But Paul also sees it as a problem on a larger level. And that is the question that he asks when he says, has the word of God fallen? Namely, he looks to all the promises of the Old Testament about how God is going to send a Messiah to save his people, and now Jesus comes, and God's people are not saved. They are rejecting the Messiah. They are under God's judgment. And so Paul is trying to explain how can this be? How can God's own people be lost? And what this leads to for Paul is a defense of the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Paul's answer is basically, as I can put it, is he says that God does not have to save anyone. He doesn't have to save anyone. He is not in our debt. He is devoted to his glory more than he is devoted to any particular person. If God doesn't save his people, God has done no wrong. God doesn't have to save anyone. And so let me begin in Romans 9 at verse 13. I'm just going to read verses 13 to 18. Romans 9, 13, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. 
Again, I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface of this amazing text, but try to follow with me. The question of verse 14 makes a lot of sense, does it not? In verse 14, Paul asks, is there injustice on God's part? That's the same question that probably most of us are asking as we come to this notion of God's sovereignty. Sounds like God is very unjust. Just sovereignly choosing who to save and who to let go. And so Paul is asking the question, is there injustice in God? And his answer that he gives in verse 14 is, by no means. And then the reason that he gives for there not being injustice in God is a quote that he gives from Exodus 33, verse 19. And again, as Paul quotes it, In Romans 9, 15, he says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, to understand how this is an argument against injustice on God's part, we have to go to Exodus 33 to see how Exodus 33, 19 is actually working in the text there. So let's go to Exodus 33 now. So I'm sorry for all this jumping around, but again, it's, it's critical to understand Exodus 33, to understand Romans 9, to understand Isaiah 6 and God's sovereignty. So to give you the setting, in Exodus 33, God has just delivered Israel from slavery and has given them his law on Mount Sinai. Now, at the very moment that God was giving his law on Mount Sinai, Israel was down at the bottom of the mountain, committing idolatry and doing all other sorts of evil. Moses comes down the mountain, and he is enraged to see that the people are committing this idolatry, and so he smashes the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And then he goes to speak to the Lord at the tabernacle. And when he goes to speak to the Lord, God tells Moses to step aside so that he can wipe out the people of Israel and start over with Moses. Moses thinks this is a very bad idea, and so he reasons with God, and he eventually persuades God not to wipe out Israel. And so God relents, and instead he only kills 3,000 of the most obstinate people of Israel by the sword of the sons of Levi. After these 3,000 are killed, Moses then goes back to the Lord and he pleads with God to forgive the people's sins. But God says he will not do it. He will not forgive this people. He tells Moses to get going with this people to the promised land. And God says, I'll send an angel with you, but I cannot go up with you myself because if I came into your midst, I would consume you with fire. Moses realizes that this simply won't work. They cannot go and take the promised land merely with an angel of the Lord. Moses realizes that they need God's presence in their midst. Moses knows that if God doesn't go with them, then they are done. They might as well go ahead and die in the desert. And so Moses again goes to God to intercede for the people. He prays and he asks God, God, let your presence go with this people. And Moses also asked the Lord to let him see his glory. 
Moses realizes that in asking God for this mercy, in asking God to be in the presence of his people, he is essentially asking God to forgive a stiff-necked and idolatrous nation and to make it his chosen people, his treasured nation. Again, it flies in the face of what God has already said to Moses. In Exodus 33, verse 5, God said, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. And yet here is Moses asking God's presence to be with his people and to lead them into the promised land. And this is why Moses was asking to see God's glory. Moses was wondering if God really had it in him to forgive a people of this kind. He was wondering who God really was deep down. He was wondering if God could do as he prayed in Exodus 34 verse 9, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Moses is wondering, can God do that? This was Moses' deepest heart question and so he asked God in 33 verse 18, he said, God, show me your glory. Let me see if you will do this for a people. And in response to this request, God responds to Moses in Exodus 33, 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, the story of God and Israel obviously does not end there. But let's take just a moment to analyze Exodus 33, 19, because again, this is what's quoted in Romans 9, 15 to explain the justice of God. The first thing that God says in Exodus 33, 19 is that he will make all of his goodness pass before Moses and will proclaim before him my name, Yahweh. Now, I don't have time to defend this claim this morning, but this is just one place among many in Scripture where God's name is equated with his glory. So Moses asked God, show me your glory. And in response, God says, I will proclaim to you my name. God's name is his glory. God's glory and his name go hand in hand. Now, when God says that he will proclaim his name Yahweh, we have to go back to Exodus chapter 3, where God first revealed his name to Moses. In Exodus 3, verses 13 to 15, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. 
God's name, that unfortunately our English translations never write down, is Yahweh. Now, I also can't go into the Hebrew linguistics behind this name at the moment, but suffice it to say that the name means something like what we read in 3.14, I am who I am. This is the meaning of God's name, the meaning of the name Yahweh. This is what Moses would have understood God to be saying. And so fast forward again to Exodus 33, 19. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, before you. And then notice what God says immediately after he says he will proclaim his name. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Notice how resonant that language is with the name of God. I am who I am. It follows the exact same pattern of I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I am who I am. In other words, God is saying in Exodus 33:19 that his very name means I am sovereign. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. This is who I am. It is my name. It is my character. When my glory passes before you, this is what you will hear and this is what you will see, that I am sovereign, that I will choose who to condemn and who to save, and no one on earth can stay my hand or say to me, what have you done? God is saying that essential to his name and his glory is this principle that no one and nothing will tell him who he will save, who he will rescue. He does it out of his own free desire, and he does it to whomever he wants, regardless of how deserving or undeserving they are. And so Moses now sees that God is indeed a God who can forgive his people. And make them his treasured possession, regardless of their sins. He sees what the name of God means for his people, that he will receive them despite their sins, because he is sovereign. So back to Romans 9, where Paul quotes this in verse 15. Again, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so how is this a defense against injustice on God's part? It's a defense because Paul says that, In God giving grace to whomever he will, and in God hardening whomever he will, God is remaining true to the most ultimate principle of justice and righteousness in the universe. The very name, the very character of God. 
For God to violate his name, for God to violate his own character would be to elevate humans to a place above God and above his ways. That, beloved, would be the ultimate act of injustice. And that is why Paul goes on to form this conclusion in Romans 9, 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And he even gives the example of Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. For Paul, and I pray for us as well, the great end result of all of this reasoning is worship. Worship for God's power and majesty, but also worship above all for God's grace. As he concludes after a long chain of reasoning in Romans 11 verse 32, he says, for God has consigned all to disobedience. You hear that sovereign work of God? Not according to our will, not according to our choice, but according to God's choice. God has consigned all to disobedience. And why has he done this? That he may have mercy on all. Beloved, God's wrath, his choosing some for condemnation is meant to elevate his mercy. It is meant to elevate his grace so that none of us, when we come into the presence of God, can in the least bit say, I am here from my own doing, from my own efforts, from my own character. Our character, our efforts have nothing to do with the grace of God that we receive, beloved. He has chosen us out of his own heart of love and compassion, not out of our own goodness. And so we should stand with Isaiah in that same stunned reality when we come into the presence of God and we realize we are undone. We should come to God with the same question that Moses came to God with, namely, this is a stiff-necked, hard-hearted, idolatrous people. Can you possibly forgive them? And the answer for God is, yes, I can. Because I am sovereign. And because there is nothing in you that makes me show you favor. It is simply my character to love and to bestow mercy. The great sum of all of this is captured in Romans 9, verses 22 and 23, where Paul asks, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That is what Judah was in Isaiah's day. They were vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, whom God was using to show his wrath and make known his power. But why did God do that? Verse 23, 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Praise God, beloved. He does show his wrath, and he chooses when to show his wrath, but he does that so that we can know the riches of his glory being poured out on us, who also just as easily could have been destined for judgment, and yet God chose not to. He chose us in Jesus Christ for love and mercy and forgiveness. So, beloved, if you can hear my voice this morning, I just exhort you, do not be a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. Trust in Christ. That is the sign that God has indeed chosen you, that he has elected you. As if you put your trust in Christ and you bear fruit in keeping with repentance, then you know with confidence that God has set his love upon you. And you also know that it is not your own doing at all. It is not your wisdom and your smarts that see the beauty of Christ. It is not that you have better taste. It is not that you're more sensitive to your own wrongdoings. It is nothing in you, beloved. It is the sovereign grace of God that came for you, that plucked you out of the desperate situation you were in, not because of anything that you had done, but simply by his abundance of grace that you can now sing of his glories. Let me pray for us now. God, your ways are indeed higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, God. Lord, we know that all your ways are righteousness, all your ways are justice. And so, God, in the light of truths like the truth of your sovereignty, all we can do, Lord, is shut our mouths and say that you do according to your own will among the hosts of the heaven and among the creatures of the earth. Lord, I do pray that we would be freshly amazed by the grace that you have poured out on us, God. Especially seeing, Lord, that we have no reason to receive it. There is no cause for it in and of ourselves. It is simply that your name is Yahweh and you will have compassion on whom you will have compassion and you will show mercy on whom you will show mercy. God, we praise you for your mercy this morning. God, precisely because you are sovereign, we pray that your mercy would extend further and further, God, beyond the walls of this church. Lord, to our whole community here, to our whole city of Pittsburgh, Indeed, to our state and our nation, Lord, you even promise in your word that the gates of hell will not stand up against the spread of your church to every corner of the earth. And so, God, in your sovereign purpose, we also pray for that to happen soon. And we trust because of your power and your love that it will. I thank you, Lord, for your word that does teach us all truth. And again, I pray that you give us hearts to receive it and to treasure it dearly. 
I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.